This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. We have episode 269 entitled, Daniel's Messianic Rock. No, we're not talking about the edgy alternative music. We're talking about the rock from Nebuchadnezzar's dream in the prophet Daniel, particularly in chapter 2. We're looking at how this dream came to be understood as a deeply messianic reference by perhaps Jesus, but certainly by many of the earliest readers of this passage. Before we get into our topic for the day, I want to remind you of something that we talked about last week, which is that I'm going to be in an upcoming debate. Yes, on April 2nd, 2023, me and Pastor Will Barlow will be debating the premise, does the Bible teach that Jesus is Yahweh? We, of course, will be taking the negative stance on that premise, but you can watch the debate live and even participate in the live audience Q&A. That's going to be on the Gospel Truths YouTube channel on April 2nd at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The link to the debate will be in the show notes of this week's episode. I hope you can come out and support us. So we're still working through our series that is combing through the passages of the Old Testament in which Jews and Christians came to understand as possessing prophecies about the coming Jewish Messiah. Because we're deeply interested in who this Messiah is, what he's supposed to do, what is his job description, and of course, what is his relationship to Yahweh, the God of Israel. This week, as I've already noted, we're going to be looking at the dream of Nebuchadnezzar from Daniel chapter 2. In particular, we'll be looking at the image of the stone that crushes the kingdoms. The stone image came to possess deeply messianic meanings among many readers of the book of Daniel. And I'm going to suggest that even Jesus himself, in one passage in the Gospel of Luke, has read and understood this passage in reference to his own messianic ministry. So here are some of the questions I would like to explore in this week's episode. First, How does the stone image relate to Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the tall statue of kingdoms? Second, how exactly did the stone come to be interpreted to refer to the messianic son of God? And lastly, how pervasive was the messianic interpretation of the stone from Daniel chapter 2 among the early interpreters? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at Daniel's prophecy about the rock made without hands. So we'll be reading through this narrative in Daniel chapter 2, and I'll comment on the verses as we move along. It's important to understand the background of this. We have Daniel and the Israelites have been exiled into Babylon around the 6th century BCE. And Nebuchadnezzar has had this dream 
and he asks his spiritual advisors to not only tell him what the dream was, but also to interpret it. Because anyone can give an interpretation, but you know that you are legitimately interpreting the dream if you can actually tell someone what they actually dreamt. So they can't do that, and Nebuchadnezzar gets upset. Eventually, through some hassle and interesting dialogue, Daniel is summoned, and he makes sure that nobody dies, and he is able to not only describe to Nebuchadnezzar the contents of his dream, but also he's able to give an inspired interpretation of that dream. That's where our story comes in. So Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 30, Daniel the prophet speaks. He says, But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king, and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the fields, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand, and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. That's verse 30 all the way through 30. I'm just going to stop there and comment. So here we have the interpretation of the dream. The dream has already been given that there is a statue with a descending level of metals, descending in the value of those metals. And of course, there is this stone that destroys all of the metals within the statue, and that stone becomes a great mountain. And Daniel is quite clear to indicate that although Nebuchadnezzar is the king, he only has this kingship and this authority because the God of Israel has given it to him. This, of course, indicates a non-controversial point that the gold of the statue is in reference to Nebuchadnezzar, who, of course, represents Babylon. Babylon is the first of these four kingdoms. Let's move on. Verse 39. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, and then another third kingdom, a bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, 
inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet are partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seeds of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. So that's all the way down to verse 43. So here we have the successive kingdoms. We have the kingdom Kingdom number two, that's inferior to Babylon. Through history, it's clear that that is the kingdom of Media. And then we have a third kingdom that rules over the entire earth. That clearly is Persia. Okay, Persia does not fit the description of the second kingdom. Persia more likely fits the description of the third kingdom. And then we have the fourth kingdom, which seems to be the successive kingdom to Persia, which is Greece. And of course, after Alexander the Great died, the kingdom was divided with its four generals, eventually leading to the Seleucids in Syria, north of Israel, and the Ptolemies, south of Israel, taking root in Egypt. So there's a sense of the divided kingdom that throughout the subsequent history did not mix well together. They were in constant conflict and battles and wars. So we can look back on history and we can fill in the blanks of this quite clearly. I don't think there's anything controversial about that if we strictly look at it from the perspective of the way that the original readers would have understood this. But let's get to our primary point. Verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, and the clay, and the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Thus Daniel chapter 2, verses 30 through 45. Now we see at the end that there's a different sort of kingdom that follows these four kingdoms. This is a kingdom that is set up by the God of heaven. And this kingdom is going to crush and rule all of these other kingdoms. Now, unlike the kingdoms in the statue of descending metals, this kingdom is not going to be replaced by the one that comes after it. This kingdom is going to endure forever. But this kingdom is represented by a stone, this rock, and it's cut out of a mountain, but it's cut out without hands, indicating that it's not done through human ingenuity. The indication here is that God is involved in the establishment of this kingdom. In fact, it's quite clear in Daniel 2.44, it says that the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. And that, I think, is the best argument as to why the phrase in the New Testament is called both the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Jesus preaches the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Those are the same things. They're just synonyms. 
And that's because in Daniel 2.44, it's the God of heaven who will set up a kingdom. It's the kingdom of God, and it's the kingdom of God who is the God of heaven. So it's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. So God sets up a kingdom, and he does so by destroying all the other kingdoms, but this kingdom is going to remain forever. It will endure forever. It will put an end to all the other kingdoms. And this is how the establishment of the kingdom of God is one that ends all other kingdoms, but yet it's quite different from all the other kingdoms because it is established by God, established by the creator God, despite the apparent power and glory and military might of all of these other kingdoms. But the way in which this kingdom is established is by this curious-looking rock, this stone. It comes out of a mountain. It's cut out of this mountain, and the stone that crushes and destroys the statue eventually grows into this giant mountain filling the entire earth. So the kingdom eventually grows into something that is quite massive and big. Now, how is it, this was our second question we were looking at, how is it that this stone imagery came to be understood in a messianic way? Well, we have seen throughout the Old Testament, particularly in Isaiah, but also in Psalm 118, that the image of a stone, sometimes it's a rejected stone, sometimes it's a stone that is tripped over by others, this stone was understood messianically. Now, in those books, in the Psalms and in Isaiah, there is a Hebrew pun that takes place. And the pun involves the Hebrew noun stone, which is eben, and that is punned with the Hebrew noun for sun, ben. Now, Daniel chapter 2, at least this particular dream, is not written in Hebrew. It's actually written in Aramaic. However, it still works because the Aramaic word for stone is also eben, just like the sister language Hebrew. So it still works, and that pun is still understood. And we could even see references in the New Testament to where prominent speakers are still speaking this particular pun in a way that assumes that the audience would understand it, even if the audience is primarily going to be speaking and understanding Aramaic. So John the Baptist says, uh, don't say for yourself that we have Abraham as our father. God can raise up sons for Abraham from these stones. So you can see the pun there between the sons of Abraham and the stones. Even though John the Baptist is almost certainly speaking Aramaic there, and even though the Gospels are written in Greek, it's quite clear that the understanding of the pun is there and present, and it's assumed that the original listeners and the original readers would have picked up on this point. It's not explained in the text, meaning the assumption is there that people would have understood this. So there's a lot of reason to assume that this pun would have been widely recognized. Again, I'm noting the fact that it was already interpreted messianically in previous passages, two in Isaiah and one in Psalm 118. And so this is another passage. The stone becomes the messianic son, the son of God. And the son of God eventually comes and crushes all the other kingdoms and establishes the kingdom of God on the earth. And this, of course, lend credence to the messianic understanding 
that the Messiah would put an end to all the foreign kingdoms that are oppressing the people of the God of Israel, and that he would establish the kingdom of God, and this kingdom would rule over the entire earth. And this kingdom, of course, would last forever. So this is based on the pun with the Aramaic noun stone, in Aramaic eben, just like it is in Hebrew, and with the noun for sun, which in Hebrew is ben. So you have that pun that takes place. Now, as I move to the New Testament, I'm going to make a caveat. I think that this is a possible meaning of the text that I'm going to bring to you. Okay, It's not entirely sure. And in fact, scholars who write commentaries on the Gospel of Luke are actually divided on this particular issue. They're not exactly sure if this is drawing influence from Daniel chapter 2 or if it's referring to one of these other passages like Isaiah and Psalm 118. But what's clear is that Jesus is speaking in this particular parable, and he is talking about a stone that's going to crush, but he interprets the stone in light of himself as the messianic son of God. Let's look at this passage. This is only found in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 9. And it says that Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to the vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave, and they beat him also, and treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third, and this one they also wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What, then, will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers and give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, they said, May it never be. But Jesus looked at them and said, What, then, is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and on whomever it falls, it will scatter them like dust. The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, but they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. That's Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 19. So this is the famous parable, the parable of the wicked tenants. It originally is found in the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel that Luke used as a source. But in Mark's version, we only have the reference to the stone that the builders rejected eventually coming to be the chief cornerstone. We don't have this additional reference that Luke includes in Luke 20, verse 18, where it says that everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and on whomever it falls it will scatter him like dust. 
That is the additional reference that Luke gives to this particular parable. And when it's combined with the other reference, the reference of the rejected stone by the builders that eventually becomes the chief cornerstone, which is drawing from Psalm 118 in reference to a rock that builders of a temple would just kind of set aside because it doesn't seem to fit what they're doing. And then eventually they find that they need this particular rock to be the one that actually fits into and finishes the temple. The rejected rock actually becomes the chief cornerstone. That stone is understood messianically with the stone sun pun that takes place. But when you combine that with the reference to the stone that breaks others and it scatters those upon whom it falls, that seems to be drawing on the only reference of a stone falling and crushing on various kingdoms, which seems to be coming from Daniel chapter 2. So I think there is a high likelihood that when Jesus is referring to himself as the son that is rejected by the workers of the vineyard, the son that is killed, the son that is rejected eventually becoming this new temple community, and eventually this son is also the one that crushes into pieces and scatters them like dust. I think what Jesus is doing here is that he is interpreting Daniel chapter 2 and the reference to the stone that crushes the kingdoms and eventually becomes the mountain of the kingdom of God that is going to last forever. I think that Jesus knows exactly what he's doing there. I think he is interpreting Daniel 2 messianically with this particular reference. And so that is quite interesting. But not all scholars think that, but you can decide for yourself what you think. Now, I want to also look at three references that are written after the Gospel of Luke to demonstrate that others were also interpreting Daniel chapter 2 and the reference to the stone in a messianic way. So the first one comes from the book 4th Ezra. You can find this in Catholic versions of the Bible that have the intertestamental books. But in 4th Ezra, chapter 13, starting in verse 5, this is an apocalyptic work, so it's going to sound a lot like the book of Revelation. It says, After this I looked and saw that an innumerable multitude of people were gathered together from the four winds of heaven to make war against the man who came up out of the sea. And I looked and I saw that he carved out for himself a great mountain and flew up onto it. And I tried to see the region of the place from which the mountain was carved, but I could not. That's 4th Ezra chapter 13 verses 5 through 7. So here we can see that there is this man who is opposing these armies of people. And what does he do? He goes and he carves out of the mountain something very interesting. And so the reference of someone carving out of a mountain, we know that what was carved out of the mountain was a stone. And now we actually see a man, a human being. And the vision actually goes on a little bit later and interprets this man as the Messiah. So that seems to, again, be drawing on Daniel chapter 2 and referring to the human Messiah as the one who carves out of the mountain. We get 
a little bit more confirmation of this interpretation by the second century early church father named Irenaeus. And in his work, Against Heresies, chapter 5, paragraph 26, he said, If, therefore, the great God showed future things by Daniel and confirmed them by his Son, and if Christ is the stone, which is cut out without hands, who shall destroy temporal kingdoms and introduce an eternal one, which is the resurrection of the just, as he declares, the God of heaven shall raise up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Let those thus confuted come to their senses. It's Irenaeus and Against Heresies, Book 5, Paragraph 26, where he is quoting quite explicitly Daniel chapter 2 and indicates that the Son of God is the stone that is cut out without hands that's going to destroy the other kingdoms. The third reference we'll look at is in Jerome, who has his own commentary on Daniel, where he goes through the various passages and he writes his own commentary on the verses. So when he's commenting on chapter 2, verse 40, he says that a rock, namely the Lord and Savior, was cut off without hands, that is, without copulation or human seed, and by birth from a virgin's womb. And if all the empires had been crushed, he became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This last, the Jews and the impious puffery apply to the people of Israel, who they insist will be the strongest power at the end of the age and will crush all realms and will rule forever. So Jerome there indicates that he thinks that the rock is our Lord and Savior Jesus, but he also indicates, I think in an interesting way, that the Jewish interpretation and the interpretation of this figure, Porphy, is regarding this in terms of Israel. Israel is that nation of the kingdom of God. But it's not surprising that Israel is being represented by a single figure, the Son of God. Son of God, of course, refers to the king, and the king is the one who represents his people. So there's really not much of a difference here. It's just one is much more focused on the one person to where the Jews interpret it much more widely to refer to the people of God, the nation of Israel. But there we can see from 4th Ezra, from Irenaeus, and from Jerome, the Messianic interpretation of Daniel chapter 2. All of those works were written after the Gospel of Luke. So I think it's very likely that Luke is portraying Jesus as interpreting himself, the son, who is to be rejected and killed, but eventually creating a new temple community, he is the one who is seeing himself as the stone that crushes all the kingdoms and creates the kingdom of God on the earth, a kingdom that is going to last forever. And there you have it. That's the messianic interpretation of the Rock from Daniel chapter 2. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we look into the prophet Micah, particularly Micah chapter 5, and we're going to try to understand the messianic interpretation that surrounds the city of Bethlehem. Please look forward to our next episode. Now, if you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we promote the sound truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You can support us for absolutely free by subscribing on YouTube and iTunes. 
by giving us an honest review online and by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. If you'd like to offer a donation, please check out the episode description for a PayPal link. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.